The Locomotive Engineer, Part 3 of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. The Locomotive Engineer, Part 3 Some Memories of the Great Record Breaking Run from Chicago to Buffalo. There is a place in New York, the very last place one would think of, where stories without end may be heard about locomotives and the men who drive them. It is not a place of grime and steam, but a quiet and luxurious club spreading over the top floor of a very tall building on 42nd Street, and here every day at luncheon time railroad officials gather, superintendents, managers, and various heads of departments men who may have grown prosperous and portly, but are always proud to talk about the boys at the throttle and recall experiences of their own in certain exciting runs. In the wide hall near the entrance of this transportation club is a driving wheel, green painted, from the DeWitt Clinton, the first locomotive that drew a passenger train in the state of New York. It is scarcely larger than a wagon wheel, though made of iron, and an inscription sets forth how it made the historic run from Albany to Schenectady on August 9, 1831. The walls show many pictures, famous locomotives, scenes of accidents, and there are thrilling memories here in abundance if one have with him some veteran of the road to recall them. It's not always the most serious accidents that frighten a man most, remarked a high official on the New York Central one day, while the rest of us listened. One of the worst scares I ever had was on a freight train, when there really wasn't anything to be scared about. We had just pulled out of Ottumwa, Iowa, one dark night, with a caboose full of passengers, when rump, ump, bang, rip! You never heard such a racket. First one end of the car was lifted up off the rails and slammed down again, and then the other end was treated the same way. Up and down we went, bump, 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 and smash went the window, and out went the lights. Now, what do you suppose it was? Hog under the wheels? suggested one of the group. More likely a mule, said another. There's nothing so tough as the hind leg of a mule. Isn't a car wheel made that'll cut through one? It wasn't a mule or a hog, and it wasn't anything alive but it got us into a panic all right. We waved a lantern-like fury to the engineer ahead, but he didn't see it for a good while, and we just bumped along, expecting every second to be split into kindling wood. We stopped at last, and found it was a beer keg. Yes, sir, an empty beer keg that had got caught under the caboose between the rear axle and the bolster of the truck, and had rolled along over the ties with the car balanced on it like a man riding a rail wasn't broken either no sir not a bit and we had to chisel through every blamed hoop before we could get it out talk about making things strong that beer keg was a wonder i had a more exciting experience than that said another official he was in the freight handling department it was a long time ago yes back in sixty three I remember getting out at a station near Cincinnati to look at some soldiers, and before I knew it, the train started. I was up by the engine, and as the drivers began to turn, I jumped on the cow-catcher. 
You see, I had often ridden there, being a railroad man, and the engineer knew me. Everything went well for a few miles, and I sat on the bumper enjoying the rush of air, for it was a hot summer's day. But presently, as we swung round a curve, the engine gave a fearful shriek, and just ahead I saw a farmer's wagon crossing the track. There were two old men on the seat, and an old white horse in the shafts. The men were so busy talking, they never heard the whistle, or perhaps they were deaf. Anyhow, we were right on them before they looked up, and then they were too dazed to do anything. One of them made a grab for the reins, but I saw it was too late, and I drew my legs up off the bumper and leaned back against the end of the boiler. I must have made a picture as I crouched there. And the next second... Well, said somebody... Well, I guess you wouldn't care to hear how things looked the next second. We struck the white horse just back of his forelegs, and I had him on my lap for a hundred yards or so. No, it didn't hurt me, but it wasn't pleasant. The two old men? I don't think they felt anything. It was so sudden. They just passed out. No, I didn't see them. But I can tell you this, I've never ridden on the cowcatcher of a locomotive since that day. There followed some talk about fast runs, and all agreed that for out-and-out -out excitement there is nothing in railroading to equal a man's sensations in one of those mad bursts of speed that are ventured upon now and then by locomotives in record-breaking trials. The heart never pounds with apprehension in a real accident as it does through imminent fear of an accident. And so great is the nerve strain and brain strain upon the men who drive our ordinary flyers that three hours in a stretch is as much as the staunchest engineer can endure running at fifty or sixty miles an hour. So you see, said one of the officials, the problem of higher speeds than we have at present involves more than boiler power and strength of machinery and the swiftness of turning wheels. It involves the question of human endurance. We can build engines that will run a hundred and fifty miles an hour but where shall we find the men to drive them? Already we have nearly reached the limit of what eyes and nerves can endure. I guess we'll have to find a new race of men to handle those locomotives of the future that they talk so much about. He went on to consider the chance of color blindness in an engineer, and told how the men's eyes are regularly tested by experts who put before them skeins of various colored yarns and make them pick out green from red, and so on. It is not pleasant to think what might happen if an engineer's eyes should suddenly fail him, and he should mistake the danger light for safety, and go ahead at some critical moment instead of stopping. Nor does one like to fancy what might happen if an engineer should go mad at his post. I know one case where an engineer did go mad, remarked a superintendent, he was one of our most experienced men, and had held the throttle for years on the fastest trains. Then one Sunday, for no reason at all, he went to the roundhouse, got out the pony locomotive, that's the one fixed up with a little parlor over the boiler, and easy chairs and polished wood. It makes a pretty observation car for big officials. Well, he got her out and started lickety-split up the main line, running wild and without orders. He stopped at Mott Haven, and told the men he wanted the pony rebuilt and silver-plated. Crazy as a loon, you see. Yes, he's in the asylum now, poor fellow. That was his last run. 
After this, one of the group gave his memories of the famous speed trial on the Lakeshore Road, when five locomotives in relays, driven by picked men, set out to beat all records in a run of 510 miles from Chicago to Buffalo. This was in October 1895, and I suppose such elaborate preparations for a dash over the rails were never made. All traffic was suspended for the passage of this racing special. Every railroad crossing between Chicago and Buffalo was patrolled by a section man. That alone meant 1,300 guards, and every switch was spiked half an hour before the train was due. The chief officials of the Lakeshore Road proposed to ride this race in person, and if possible, smashed the New York Central's then recent world's record of 63.61 miles an hour, including all stops, over the 436.5 miles between New York and Buffalo. They had before them a longer run than that, and hoped to score a greater average speed per mile, but they wished to come through alive and were taking no chances. It was half-past three in the morning, and frosty weather, when the train started from Chicago, with Mark Floyd at the throttle, and various important people, general managers, superintendents, editors, etc., on the cars behind. There were two parlor coaches, weighing 92,500 pounds each, and a millionaire's private car, one of the finest and heaviest in the country, weighing 119,500 pounds, which made a total load, counting engine and train, of something over 200 tons. The first relay was 87 miles to Elkhart, Indiana, and the schedule they hoped to follow required that they cover this distance in 78 minutes, including nine slowdowns. 87 miles in 78 minutes was well enough, but the superintendent of the Western Division had set his heart on doing it in 75 minutes, and had promised Mark Floyd 200 good cigars for every quarter of a minute he could cut under that time. But alas for human plans! Between upgrades and the darkness, they pulled into Elkhart at five minutes to five, which was eighty-five minutes for the eighty-seven miles. Not bad going, but it left them seven minutes behind the schedule, and left Mark to console himself with his old clay pipe. One hundred and thirty-one seconds were lost at Elkhart in changing locomotives, and it was three minutes to five when Big 599, with Dave Luce in the cab, turned her nose toward the dawning day and started for Toledo, 133 miles away. Great things were expected in this relay, for about half of it was straight as a bird's flight and downgrade, too, so that hopes were high of making up lost time, especially as Luce had the reputation of stopping at nothing when it was a question of getting there. He certainly did wonders, and five minutes after the start, he had the train at a 62-mile gate, and ten minutes later at a 67-mile gate. Then they struck frost on the rails and the speed dropped, while the time-takers studied their stopwatches with serious faces. At ten minutes to six they reached Waterloo and the long straight stretch. As they whizzed past the station, Dave pulled open his throttle to the last notch and yelled to his fireman. Here was where they had to do things. Butler was seven and a half miles away, the first town in the down grade, and they made it in six minutes and forty seconds, 
nearly sixty-eight miles an hour. In the next seven miles, Dave pushed her up to seventy an hour, then to seventy-two and a half, and let her out in a great burst which made the passengers sit up, and showed for several miles a top-notch rate of eighty-seven miles an hour. Nevertheless, taking account of frost and slowdowns, they barely finished the relay on schedule time, so that for the whole run they were still seven minutes behind time. The schedule they had set themselves called for such tremendous speed that it seemed almost impossible to make up a single lost minute. The third relay was 108 miles to Cleveland, and they did it in 104 minutes, including many slowdowns and a heartbreaking loss of four minutes when a section hand red-flagged the train and brought it to a dead stop from a seventy-mile gate because he had found a broken rail. The officials were in such a state of tension that they would almost have preferred chancing it on the rail to losing those four minutes. There is a point of eagerness in railroad racing where it seems nothing to risk one's life. The train drew out of Cleveland nineteen minutes behind the time they should have made for a world's record. Every man had done his best, every locomotive had worked its hardest, but fate seemed against them, and hopes of beating the Central's fast run were fading rapidly. The fourth relay was to Erie, ninety-five and a half miles, and some said that Jake Gardner, with 598, might pull them out of the hole, but the others shook their heads. At any rate, Jake did better than those who had preceded him, and he danced that train along at seventy-five, eighty, eighty-four miles an hour, so the watches said, and averaged sixty-seven miles an hour for the whole relay. It's the kind of thing that makes you taste your heart and packs a week into ten minutes, said the superintendent, telling about it. You may take one ride smashing around curves at eighty miles an hour, but you'll never take another. Still, in spite of these brave efforts, they pulled out of Erie fifteen minutes late, and started on the last relay with gloomy faces. It was eighty-six miles to Buffalo, the end of the race, and they must be there by eleven-thirty-one to win, which called for an average speed of over seventy miles an hour, including slowdowns. No train in the world had ever approached such an average, and their own racing average since leaving Chicago was much below it. So what hope was there? There was hope in a tall, sparely-built man named Bill Tunkey, whom nobody knew much about except that he was a good engineer with a rather clumsy ten-wheel locomotive not considered very desirable in a race. All the other locomotives had been eight-wheelers. Still, the new engine had one advantage, that she carried water enough in her tank for the whole run, and need not slow up to refill as the others had done. She had another advantage, that she carried Tunky, one of those men who rise up in sudden emergencies and do things, whether they are possible or not. It was not possible, everybody vowed, to reach Buffalo Creek by 1131. All right, said Tunky, quietly, and then, Within forty rods of the start, he had his engine going thirty miles an hour, and he pressed her harder and harder, until eleven miles out of Erie, she struck an eighty-mile pace, and held it as far as Brockton, when she put forth all her strength, and did a burst of five miles in three and a half minutes, 
one of these miles at a rate of ninety-two and a quarter miles an hour, as the watches showed. And I never want any more of that in mine, said the superintendent. The next town was Dunkirk, where a local ordinance put a ten-mile limit on the speed of trains. Tunky smiled as they roared past the station at more than eighty. A crowd lined the tracks here, for the telegraph had carried ahead the news of a hair-raising run. That crowd was only a blur to staring, frightened eyes at the car windows. The officials were beginning to realize what kind of an engineer they had ahead this time. Whiz! How they did run! War! War! barked the little bridges, and were left behind. Hoo! bellowed a tunnel. And rip! Whirr! as they slammed around a double reverse curve with a vicious swing that made the bolts rattle in the last car. Men put their mouths to other men's ears and tried to say that perhaps Mr. Tunky was getting a little overzealous. Much good that did. Mr. Tunky had the bit in his teeth now and was playing the game alone. At eleven six they swept past Silver Creek with twenty-nine miles to go and twenty-five minutes to make it in. Hurrah! They had made up time enough to save them. At eleven twenty they passed Lake View. Twelve miles more and eleven minutes, yelled somebody, waving his hat. Toboggan slide all the way, yelled somebody else. We'll do it easy. Hooray! They passed Athol Springs at eleven twenty-four, all mad with excitement. They had seven minutes left for eight miles, and were cheering already. We'll make it with a half a minute to spare, said the only man in the private car who was reasonably cool. He was six seconds out of the way, for they crossed the line twenty-six seconds before 11.31, and won the race by less than half a minute, beating the New York Central's record per mile on the whole run by a fraction of a second, and beating the whole world's record in the last relay by several minutes, the figures standing, Tunky's figures, eighty-six miles from Erie to Buffalo, in seventy minutes and forty-six seconds, or an average speed of seventy-two point nine one miles an hour. Do? said the official. What did we do? Why, we, we... He paused helplessly, and then added with a grin, Well, we didn't do a thing to Tunky. End of The Locomotive Engineer, Part 3